Okay, we're here with Alex Lloyd. Before you were a journalist, you were a real racer. I raced in basically everything. I started off, I, I did a little bit of Formula Ford, but I basically started off in the UK doing Formula Renault, which was uh, alongside basically the year that Lewis Hamilton was doing it. We kind of grew up through karting, you know, age 10 together. Mm-hmm. Um, so did that. I then went, when he went to Formula 3, I went off to European Formula 3000. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd won a, an award, which was the British Young Driver of the Year Award, which was kind of a, a kind of a cool thing. It got me a test with McLaren in Formula One. Um, and but Lewis was already at McLaren. Lewis was their develop, junior driver, basically. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in fact, our first day in a Formula One car was his first day. So, that, you know, we went there and you know got to share a day together and, and drive the F one car. How did you get to to IndyCar? How did what was how how did you land? So IndyCar? effectively, for me, it was you know in the in Europe. It was just like looking through a tunnel and there was just no light at the end of it. Everything was budgets. Everything was budget dependent and huge budgets, you know, million, two million dollars just to get in junior ranks. And I did some A1GP representing Great Britain in 2005 and six, but I was kind of just doing bits and pieces, actually 2005. Uh, And I decided I need to get to America. At the sort of the top echelons of what a pro racing driver experiences, a lot of uncertainty you you take the seats that you can get and uh, you 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 earn money where you can and yeah it sucks honestly it's, it's terrible, tough man. terrible career it's a great career I mean it's really but it's fun. also dangerous yeah it's, uh, it's it's dangerous you're putting everything on the line and when you're not in one of those competitive cars um, you know for the ovals in the first year I did it with Dale Coyne was okay because we had good cars on the ovals and that's really where the danger yeah. I don't say that is where the danger is because danger could be anywhere but yeah. that is where the most prominent danger is yeah and you know the car was was actually very strong on the ovals we finished fourth at the 500 uh, we actually crossed the line third but um, through some andretti trickery we got bumped back down to fourth what, what is it about the ovals that makes them so dangerous in our case i mean it's the, obviously the speed i mean you're, you're doing at indianapolis you're turning in at, in in my day which is before you know they've started up in the boost a bit uh we turn in about 234 or something with no toe in qualifying you know, if something goes wrong at that speed, you know, you you hit that wall unimaginably hard, yeah. which you know hurts incredibly. It's you know, and you always know that you're on the edge. With well, those cars, it's not like other cars where you feel the car moving. You're like, okay, yeah. I, can, I kind of know where the edge is. With these high downforce, slick tired cars, you know, big wheels. Yeah, it's you have grip, you have grip, you have grip, bang, it's gone. And you and snap. There's no, there's no response. I mean, if you see somebody catch a big slide, as every as the drivers will tell you afterwards, pure luck. You know, there's nothing you can do. You're just a passenger. So, you you know, you've got that. It's That's interesting. So the, the limit for you is you you have grip, you have grip, and suddenly you don't. Yeah. You can't play Once you around touch the to limit, find usually it. in the wall. So, yeah, you don't feel the back moving or you feel the front moving a bit. And it's like, okay, here we go. I kind of around that limit now. Now, how can I extract a little bit more out of it? It's like, you know, in some of these ovals cases, you're flat out. You know, you're just hanging on. And it's like, okay, I'm there. I know i am got to be somewhere close. If the front goes a bit, you can feel that. Yeah. Um, but when the back goes, it's just, you know, it's just one. It, it goes. Uh, and occasionally you'll catch it. And you'll see in the in-cars of guys, they, they make these little movements like that. And the guys will immediately pit, you know, like, not, not if it's a race. If it's a race, you just yeah. hang on for dear life. But if it's practice at Indy, you know, the pit, it's like, you know, sweat dripping down their face. Like, okay, we need a breather. I mean, it's that much of a movement. And the consequences are you're you're in the middle of the track or you're on your racing line or, or whatever, one second. And then a split second later, you're in the in the wall. Yeah, and that's... 
Something it, you have to keep. I assume you keep that out of your mind. You try as you're to. Racing. I mean, it really only comes in, creeps into your mind when you crash, and that's you know you hear a lot of IndyCar drivers will say you know they're you know as a rookie it's like you know oh wow this guy is really he's on it look at him he's so aggressive he's taking all these lines he's making these moves and like yeah wait till he crashes he'll crash soon and then he'll change because you suddenly start to realize you know what it feels like when it goes wrong and specifically when you do hit that wall so tell me did you have experience crashing at ovals the only real big one i had well i had a couple of big ones 2008 uh my first indy 500 we were getting into qualifying trim, pulling the downforce off. And qualifying is a, it's an intense time. You're going a lot faster. You're, yeah. you're set up for a lot more speed. The tricky thing with qualifying, and in Indianapolis, if you've got downforce, you can be flat out. You've mm-hmm. got to get the line right and everything, but it, it's not, well, I never say it's comfortable because it's not comfortable. Every time you go into turn one, you take a breath, and you're like, okay, let's hope we come out the other end. But in qualifying, you're take, you know, you're just you're, you're adding, you're taking downforce away, which is increasing your top speed. You're taking grip away, and you're going doing that as much as you physically can until it's like, okay, I can't take anymore. You know, if we take this, you know, a pound more downforce out of this car, it will be in the wall. So you're finding that balance, but still keeping it flat out because if you lift, you're done. So. I mean, it is absolutely so on a knife edge, and as we said, that knife edge is like, you know it's huge wreck or you know or too slow if you're on the other side so you know and as a driver you've got to try and get the steering lock out of the car you've got to drive it by the right rear tire to try and free it up because steering lock is scrub and when you mm-hmm. flat out that's just scrubbing speed and it's it's killing your time mm-hmm. so you've got to run the car really loose really free which means you've got to get the wheel out of it which means a good oval driver is really sensitive to what's going on and can kind of be precise with the wheel but it means that the car is absolutely on the edge, kind of floating almost. Hmm. Uh, so for, you know, for my first time, I'm experiencing this and I'm asking the guys on the radio, uh, my engineer, like, you know, when we take keep taking downforce up, off, because there's a minimum at that point, it was kind of negative six on the rear wing, which any more and it just stalls the air and you just, you lose massive downforce um, and don't get, you, you, there's no real reduction in drag. But negative six is basically the limit you can uh-huh. do. We got to minus five. And I'm like, okay, this is on the edge. Car was really quick. And I said, okay, when we keep going more, when we go to this next step, um, you know, should the balance change? No, balance shouldn't change. You know, I'm a rookie. They, you know, we go out, drive into turn three. I'm like, oh, it feels a little bit looser than it did on the last time. Let's see what it does in turn one. And that's all, that's the rookie mistake right there. Let's see what happens. <laughs> you go into turn one, flat out. Somebody had made a mistake, basically. They took the rear downforce off to minus six, but then they put, front downforce on as if we were going back up so the whole balance was completely skewed towards the front so the rear end is floating if you're negative six on the rear end yeah i mean effectively we just changed all that balance to give it uh-huh. massive amounts of front grip mm-hmm. and when you're on that much you know on the edge anyway you, ju- you just can't take it so i just turn into one thing immediately snapped around and you just have that that what it does feel like an eternity of just you're going backwards and you just you don't really know what's about to happen because at that point you've never experienced it. And then when you hit, it's then, I mean, I just remember just taking, it was almost like taking something out of you almost. It was weird, which is probably just air. I mean, you know, yeah. but it just, you kind of just felt like you were half a person for a little while, which is weird as you come into a stop. I remember the radio saying, you guys, are, are you okay? And I think my answer was too soon to tell. Like I didn't know if I was okay. What, I couldn't what, tell. Am I, am where I okay? did you, am I not? where did you impact? Uh, it was a rearward impact in turn one. 
Um, and I, the, the biggest mistake I made is they always tell you, take your hands off the wheel, head back against the head pad. Because uh-huh. when you're going to have a rearward impact, you don't want your head forward. Right. My thing was like, damn, there's a wall coming up behind me. Uh, here. This is going to hurt. You cringed. So then, yeah, I cringed. So you get the, the whip of the neck, which then hit the head pad, which I, I forget what the G was now, but they all I do know is they made an example of it the next year in a preseason meeting of, you know, in that case, how safe the cars are. This guy walked away with, you know, a head impact of what was just, I remember it just being crazy G level. Um, in the 20s, 30s? Oh, way higher than way that. Way higher it was like than in the 70s or 80s. 70s or 80s. It was, it was really high. I mean, it gave me a massive concussion. I was in hospital for three days. Um, you know, wow. With, with huge concussion. And, and in reality, I got back in the car three or four days later because I had to. You got out of the hospital with a terrible headache. Where do you go from there? Is there like a lesson that you can pull out of that? Uh, that shook my confidence. Not so much. I mean, it did actually. The next time I got back in the car, you know, in race trim, so you got downforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so it should feel comfortable. And I did, you know, hold it flat out all the way around, but I felt uncomfortable. And the biggest thing with me that year is we had one car. Um, we didn't have a backup car. So that car was rebuilt. And I swore that, you know, this car is not right. It doesn't feel right. It feels uncomfortable. It's not driving the same. But of course, as a, as a young driver coming in, you know, the thought is, it's just this kid. He's, he, you know, he's had his first wreck. He's feeling a bit nervous. Mm-hmm. He's not very happy. And I really had a terrible rest of the month. I was all out to see. The race was terrible. I actually crashed in the race. It just, I, I radioed in almost every lap, like, I'm on the verge of crashing. Like, this is, this is so, so bad. And we did crash, and I actually crashed through the pit lane. Uh, luckily, just missed the walls either side because that could have been bad. Yeah, As it happened, it was no bad. big deal. Um, but I was on a you know development deal, so I had the next year. Next time I got an Indy car was the following Indy 500 in 2009, and I basically spent the rest of that that year panicking. You know, is it me? Was was it me? Did I just get spooked? Did I have my first big wreck? And then I'm you know I'm now terrified of what's. Uh, of what could happen, and that's what was making me feel uncomfortable. I was just, you know, these things that you are sensitive for, uh, for just, you know, screwed with me and, and got me scared. And it was only really that year when I got back in the car and everything felt normal. It felt good. And I was like, oh, wow, that's how it should have felt. Um, that's how it was feeling. And suddenly my confidence came back. I never had that feeling again. But, but there are risks. I mean, oh, IndyCar yeah. Indy is a dangerous, it's a dangerous environment. I mean, it's Compared to NASCAR, certainly, maybe, uh, uh, maybe not. Maybe compared to Formula One, certainly, it's it, a, it's a huge risk compared to other sport, other forms of motorsport. And I think, honestly, as a driver, you just you block it out. Is that it won't happen to me? You had this sensation, I think, when I was racing that I could get injured here. You know, there's a lot of people were fracturing their backs and stuff like that, but nobody was really too serious. I think we had a crash in 2010. Uh, Mike Conway had a big crash in the in the wall, wrecked his legs. Uh, but again, you know, he wrecked his legs and his back. But he, he, you know, within too long, he was up and walking, and now he's doing very, very well in sports cars and having mm-hmm. a great career. So you you always have this sense of this could hurt, and I'd experienced something that had hurt. Fortunately, it did no you know no lasting damage. But you know, I sat in the hospital, cough, you know, throwing up lumps of blood this big and stuff. I mean, nasty stuff. But you think, okay, if that's the worst it's going to be, I, I can deal with that. It's not very nice, but I can deal with it. Uh, it was really only in 2011 when you had suddenly we have the big, you know, the big wreck in Vegas, the mm-hmm. kind of shock, shocked. You, know, you, you were there. I was there. I was, yeah, I think 15 cars of us, you know, were involved in the wreck. Um, but I mean, even before that, we knew it was one of the weirdest pre-race 
uh, kind of gatherings of drivers that I've been to. Because normally you have the driver introductions where you go this up is, on. Just to, to establish a little, this is when Dan Weldon was killed. This was, yeah. And uh, he was, he wasn't running a full schedule. No, he just won. The, he he'd lost his drive, no sponsorship. He got put in a Brian Herter car for one race at the Indy 500 and won it. Mm-hmm. Um, was That was the race that J.R. Hildebrand crashed in the Panther mm-hmm. car on the last corner. Dan wins the race. Had no ride for the rest of the season, but they did get him together for this Vegas race. And it was almost an exhibition. It was a, There was a stunt element to it as well. There was. I mean, really, there was a huge marketing dollars put behind this race. That we're going to Vegas. It's the championship finale. There's 34 cars. You know, we're going to, before the race, we're going to have everybody rip down the strip in Vegas, up and down mm-hmm. in the cars. You know, we're going to make a massive spectacle, be out there for a whole week. Lots of media attention. And Dan Weldon, the, you know, the reigning Indy 500 champion, he's going to come. We're going to put him starting at the back. And if he can win the race, I think it's like a $5 million payout or something mm-hmm. like that. Two and a half million goes to a fan who, mm-hmm. you know, select, you know, we select the fan, pull the drawer out of the hat, that guy, you know, or girl wins two and a half million, and then yeah. Dan will take the rest, or the team will take the rest. So there was a bit of a gimmick played, um, and the track was, I mean, it's a NASCAR track. It's a big track. It's very high banked, which is fine for them. But for us, our worry going in was this is so easy flat out. Yeah. I mean, you know, quite literally anybody could jump in a car with very little experience, put their foot flat to the floor and just drive around that track. Which out, means doing the same time as everybody else. Which means there's four or five racing lines, which means yeah. people are going four across, four wide, five wide around yeah. these And, and these a lot turns. of tracks you have, let's say you have them. I mean, there are other tracks we've done to where there's been three racing lines. Um, Texas, I mean, I'm, I've you know, done a lot of ta- pat racing there. It's not the same nowadays, but a few years back, it was hardcore pat racing. But you had they were the lines and the grooves were pretty definitive of where mm-hmm. you run. If you're in the low low groove or the middle or the high, that's the groove. You can't really venture outside of that. You get kind of commit to that groove and you're in it. With Vegas, it was so easy that you could go one, one and a half, you go two, two and a half, you go back down, you can kind of move. So people were moving. And of course, when everybody's flat out doing the same speed, the only way you're gonna pass somebody when you're side by side is by trying to pinch them a bit. You know, if you can just push this guy down to the white line a little bit more, he's got to add a bit more steering lock. That'll give him a bit of scrub, and then I'll come out and I'll kind of push wide a bit. That'll open up my steering, give me a bit of run, and maybe I can make the move happen. So there's a lot. It becomes a chess game. It mm-hmm. really does. And Very it, high stakes. I mean, high stakes. Wheel you contact. Start, is... Exactly. You're pushing it. You're like, you, you know, if you touch wheels, you know, one of us is going to get flipped up straight to that catch fence. It's going to be really bad. But when it comes to racing, it's, you know, you take chances that you would think you wouldn't do at the time. But you take those chances because, you know, you're in the moment and you want that position. It's like, I'll squeeze them a bit more. And our biggest fear as drivers coming into that race, nobody wanted to do it because we said, you know, it's going to be a huge wreck. The the pack is going to be so big, something is going to happen. And, you know, you're so close. When one person goes, everybody goes. You can't avoid it. And our cars aren't like NASCARs where they just crumple up and you've got a roof and everybody's okay when the big one happens. When we've got, you know, we've got our heads exposed. We've got open wheels that... Uh, catch and you know f- people can fly hundreds of feet in the air uh hundreds of yards in the air i mean yeah. crazy figures um so we were nervous about it and the pre-race meeting where you know you're kind of waiting for the driver introductions where they bring you up this little tower with a little firestone firehawk and uh-huh. wave to the fans and go down and take your you know your lap in the back of a car all the drivers gather at the back and usually there's 
everybody's friendly. IndyCar drivers will get on. But usually there's a little bit of, you know, kind of people strutting their stuff, feeling good. You know, there's some confidence there. Everybody's ready to go. This was just this weird atmosphere. You know, you kind of talk to other drivers like, hey, how you, how you doing? How you feeling? And they'd, it'd be like, I just want to get it over with. Just let's just get this weekend over with. Really? And it was, was qualifying? Was it was qualifying? Qualifying was okay, just because you won on you kind of one on one. But we had done the testing in packs. Yeah. I mean, these aren't thirty four cars. You know, right. you end up being in a pack of about eight cars, right. and or ten cars maybe, and you can start to see it take shape, and you could say, okay, eight or ten cars is pretty sketchy. When we had thirty four in the mix, and you know, a race in practice. We're going to give a little bit more room. There's no need to push the limits that much. Um, you know something bad could happen. and So I think everybody sensed that. And everybody I mean, just in NASCAR, they call it the big one. and It's an inevitability. Yeah. Everybody sort of waits for it. And exactly. And, it, and it, when we knew it was an inevitability in, in this IndyCar race. The problem was we knew that we were so much more unsafe than these guys. And we were averaging 225 instead of averaging you know, 190 or 200. So that extra, you know, that extra 25, 30 mile an hour is a big deal. And we've got a heads out and we've got exposed wheels. Yeah. Um, and you were right behind Dan. Yeah. So basically the race had started. You knew it was crazy. I was kind of in the middle of the pack. Um, Dan passed me on the outside and you could tell he was, you know, we were all taking it relatively easy at that point. My kind of game plan was it was a long race. Just, you know, let's just take our time. Let's just see what happens, kind of figure out the car. It's easy to to move your way to the front on mm -hmm. these if you've got a good car um, just because of the draft and if you you know take a few chances here and there but do what you need to do so dan had, had passed me going into the back or on, on the front straight actually and i just tucked him behind him and i was probably you know not much further from the distance that we are apart from him and you know we went into turn one and you could just see out of the left you know a little you know 300 400 yards in front two guys caught you could just see a little bit of smoke um, and of course, then they you know immediately go up the track. At that point, you just you know your first thought is brake. I mean, that's the first. What kind of brake system were you running? See, and and that's the tricky thing. A lot of people had different brake systems in there. There was you know reports of drivers that had effectively pushback brakes, mm -hmm. which is something you do for qualifying. They effectively tie wrap the brake pads away, so you have no brakes in qualifying. But it's flat out; you don't need them. When you need to pit, you just have to pump it yeah. three or four times. It takes a couple of seconds, and then you've got brakes. It's illegal to do that in the race, but there were some loopholes around it where you could bring the brake pads back to give it a little bit more room so there's no friction, there's no mm -hmm. chance of you know the pad rubbing against the rotor and slowing you down that extra half a mile, mile an hour. Um, and a lot of teams were running this, this system, and that meant for those drivers, when they had to brake, they hit the brake, there's nothing there. They've got to spend you know, half a second to pump that brake up so that they can slow down. That half a second at 225 miles an hour is, you know, you've got somebody a, like in my case. So so I saw the wreck happening. I slowed down. I was probably down to about 165. And I thought, I was actually at the point where I'm like, I can miss this. I, you know, where do I want to go? Do I want to go low? Or are they going to move high? It sort of everything slows down. I mean, everything's happening in an instant of a second. Dan's still in front of you. I don't even know at this you point. You don't even know. I mean, he was as I started to break. But yeah. I know I break pretty, pretty hard, pretty quickly, like, you know. You, you you can't break too hard because you're in the middle of the corner. You're going to crash, but hard enough that I could get the speed from 225 down to about 160, 165. A reasonable 160. Yeah, yeah. and at the point that the closing speeds to the people crashing in front didn't seem dramatic. Like I could physically try. I was physically looking to say, okay, 
these two look like they're probably going to go up the track. These two might go down the track. I could see it, it was all, you know, these guys were having big wrecks. But I'm like, there might be a gap there. So if I if I angle it this way, that's probably the safest bet. And then I just felt a thump in the back. You know, my car spins round, comes to a stop. I get out, and I'm the first the first car to to stop. Um, so you know, and I'm looking the opposite direction. So I get out the car. You went down to the bottom yeah. of the track. Down to the bottom. I'm facing that way. I radio in, saying, "Sorry, guys, that's it. You know, I got hit from the back." We're out. Got out of the car, and honestly, there was some form of relief because I knew I was okay. My my wreck, you know, I did hit the wall, but it was it was not a not a in hard impact. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, I've I've I felt in some way like I've escaped this one. I can get out. I'm fine. Um, didn't really think much of it. Didn't realize at the time actually my radio didn't work. So my family and everybody had no idea. They they thought I wasn't answering, and you couldn't see who was in what what position. In fact, the they did put my name tag on a, an image of Jay Howard in his car, which was on fire and all sorts of saying it was me. It wasn't me. So it kind of freaked out a few people. But I was fine. I got out. I'm looking at the rest of the track, turn around to go and like find where the communal gathering mm-hmm. point is for the drivers and where the, you know, the... Home outro guys. Yeah, the, where, yeah, yeah, when they're going to take us and take us off to the medical center because everybody has to go. Everybody has to have a mandatory track regardless of whether you feel fine. And it was only really then you turn around and you're like, whoa, okay they're like this is bad then I'm you know I can see people probably about 500 yards away where people are starting to gather with it so I'm like okay I'll walk that way so I'm I'm walking down there and it's as every step almost you start getting some form of realisation it's like a war zone it's like okay I'm taking another step oh there's an engine like just an engine burning on fire there's a drive shaft that's on fire too and you just start walking through all this debris and you're like kind of, you know, I'm trying to watch your footing because you're standing on stuff and it's like wow okay Cars wrecked. You know, at the time though, I'm seeing drivers getting out and mm-hmm. everything. You're like, okay. Um, you're realizing, wow, this is big. Then you have to go and stand in a, you know, and wait for all the other drivers to come and congregate. We all try and get in the car. And then you start to see some of the, you know, you're starting then to pick out some of the drivers that have had it worse. Um, I think, you know, Pippa Man had, had mm-hmm. gone past me upside down with a handout and it turned out she like basically lost a finger. Mm-hmm. Um, again, one of those people that had no brakes. I mean, she, uh, you know, had said that afterwards like just I hit the brakes I was way behind the pack I hit the brakes couldn't do anything and just you know hit that crowd at, you know that crowd of cars at who knows what speed um, but then you'd see you know you saw Dan's crash and you knew it was bad because you could see there was no roll cage mm. you know the whole roll cage was gone and I think at the time I got there they were trying to lift him out and you could see that he was kind of limp um, but at the time, I mean, know, what do you think goes to your mind? The roll cage is gone. That's I didn't even think. My my thought was, it's you know, it's a huge wreck, you know, huge wreck. But everybody's wreck was huge. You know, every car was just demolished, and everybody else, you know, most of the people now are standing around me. So it's like, okay, the first thought is his back or something like he's going to have broken his back here. It's, this is you know, he's injured. He's pretty badly injured. But you never even, I never even once thought death never even crossed my mind it's just he uh that's the, damn, this is this is this is what we feared this is what's happened dan's going to be injured god knows how long it'll take for him to recover this is this sucks you know at that point and, and you know it's bad and there's a couple of drivers that came back white face because they they had been to check on him you know to try and say hey you're okay and you know i guess uh, paul tracy and thomas Schechter, both of whom never raced indycar again hmm. I know that that was, you know, Paul Tracy's a tough guy, about as tough a racer as you'll probably meet. And that, I think, for him then was basically a, 
I think it's time for me to hang on. It's a Jackie Stewart moment. Yeah, it was. It was. I've seen too much here. This is. This is not good. But at the time, we didn't really know this. You know, all the drivers are game there. You can see some drivers were very quiet, unusually. Then you had people like Will Power, and I think the the onboard footage of his was most spectacular because he hits a car at the back, he barrel rolls in the air on fire, and lands face first into the into the fence. Well, the car he hit was me as it happened. I didn't know this until after the fact. It didn't feel like a massive bump to me, but I was effectively his launch pad. At that speed, you don't need a lot to to, to launch the cars into the air because they have wings on the front and the back. Exactly. So you know, he launched up. He was just recovering from a broken back. Got out of the car. He said, and he's walking around. He said, I know I broke my back again. I know I've, I know I've done it and probably shouldn't have been walking around. But he's just like, I can feel it. I can feel it's gone. But, I mean, he was furious. And he, you know, he's been on camera before of losing his temper a little bit. He was, you know, as I think we're all feeling inside of why were we here? Why were we put in this position? You know, we have said time and time again, somebody's in this, you know, that somebody's going to get hurt. I think him and his comment in the car was somebody's, you know, we've killed, we're going to have killed somebody today. But I don't think anybody still really believed it. To this day, the the catch fences are still the same catch fences. Mm. I mean, the sad thing I think about Dan Weldon's death is there aren't the resources. We were sort of talking about this. The resources out there to prevent this kind of death uh, just don't exist. Yeah. I mean, these the, it's the catch fence. And this is what I think honestly annoys me more about anything involving motorsport right now is – for those of us that were involved in that race and those of us that had to then go back to the medical center and see Dan being wheeled in, rushing, see his wife quite literally at the time, you know, 30 seconds later, running in, tears in her eyes, my wife having to then go and look after his, you know, with a, a lot of the wives, going to look after his children. They had a young one you know, mm-hmm. that needed diapers. Let's go to the store. Can you get diapers? Bring diapers to the hospital. All this kind of stuff. For those of us that saw all that and went through it all, and then we had the meeting afterwards, after the funerals, after all that, we then had a had a kind of come to Jesus moment where we all sit there and say, okay, what do you drivers need? Because a lot of drivers had no health care. They had no uh, no racing health care, um, so n- no form of protection. And they couldn't afford protection because drivers weren't earning enough money. It's so bizarre to think at that level. You know, exactly. To national. You, know, you had a few guys circuit. that were, obviously, you know, the guys in the big teams, but the rest of the guys are like, I can't afford to, I can't afford to buy insurance for this. If something happens, you know, or if I, you know, if I'm injured and I need help for the rest of my life, you know, some kind of medical help, I can't afford it. So, you know, there was a lot of talks and also talks about safety, talks about we have to stop this brake thing once and for all. We cannot have cars, you know, some cars like me being able to stop instantly and other cars like Will Power not being able to stop and using me as some crazy launch pad. But we need to do something about, you know, what can we do about catch fencing? What can we do about protecting the driver's head? You know, this is it now. This, you know, this was such a big deal globally. I mean, the, that story, I mean, I did a lot of media in the UK, a lot of media all over the place. I mean, it was, I think, you know, the, the next few days after the wreck were difficult because every driver's phone was just blowing up with, you know, every major news organization, every single, you know, high profile journalist in person calling up the drivers, you know, trying to get somebody to talk. Um, so, you know, we're all dealing with this, but the whole thing coming away with it is, this is it time has to change and i think we all felt out of that meeting i felt like this is one of those moments it's the Ayrton senna moment it's yeah. the jackie stewart moment before that of times have to change mm-hmm. and this is where some this will be the moment where we'll look back and say you know his unfortunate death has perhaps saved many other drivers in the future because of the innovations that came from that 
uh, and, it and it never happened. Nothing has happened. Nothing. And you know, there's there's a lot of reasons behind it. I mean, you know, lack of money, as you mentioned, being the first and foremost part, is it costs huge amounts to develop an, an entirely new catch fence system, one that perhaps is some kind of plexiglass material that's incredibly strong that can withhold a you know withstand a car hitting it at 230 mile an hour and which you think you think of what kind of material you need that can do that and can still be see-through so that the crowd can still see and all that stuff well the cost to create even just a small part of that must be astronomical mm-hmm. i mean you're talking nasa grade type of things here that they probably you know using some of their spaceships that i don't know cost x amount for a piece this big that we need to now you know, probably used for the, the entire of a one and a half or a two and a half mile oval. You know, IndyCar doesn't have the credibility or the money behind it to say to a, an, you know, a promoter or a, a track owner and say, we need you to do your entire, you know, your entire venue in this, this material that's going to cost you millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And really it only helps us IndyCar guys because the NASCAR guys, it would help, but hey, no, no one's getting killed in NASCAR no. doing that. I mean, you never no. know, but... They can hit the catch fencing and they walk away. It's one of those things that if it did happen in NASCAR and somebody was killed or really badly hurt, then then maybe they would talk about it. Yeah, and they've got some leverage to do it. IndyCar just didn't have any leverage. It was right at that turning point where IndyCar said, you know, we're sick of of hemorrhaging money every year yeah. because Tony George was funding some of right. the other teams. He was you know, but, trying to keep the series afloat. But Tony's gone. Yeah, Tony's and gone. Still, and the, there's the, the, the family. You know, his the George family. Their request is: we become a profitable business. We stop giving money to teams. We don't need to now. We've got enough car count. It feels like there's a recipe. It's the recipe is the, like the the uh, the equation is still out there yeah. that this is going to happen again. Well, and it, and it really still... did because we lost Justin Wilson. You know, That's another right. father of two two young girls. Dario um, was almost killed, and it's a di- yeah. different scenario. But it was a catch fence. Catch fence that. You know, ended his career yeah. Um, and yeah I mean very well could have killed him you know and you think of all these other drivers that have been so close you know you look at the head there yeah. it's like you know you're talking millimeters here that could make the difference and obviously like I said we lost Justin Wilson to a head impact of you know debris hitting his helmet um, Hinchcliffe a year mm-hmm. or two before got yeah. hit by debris and was knocked unconscious while driving yeah. these things just aren't going away if you had a chance to go back and race IndyCar, some sort of uh, destiny called you back, would you? Would you? You've got four kids. I get asked this all the time, and I was at the Indy 500 this year, and if somebody said, here's a car, you want to go run it, I'd jump in that car. In Vegas? Would you race Vegas? I probably would jump back in again. Ah, you're a psycho. It, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> there's, like a, there's a bit of a call. I mean, here's the thing. You, you can... You can grumble about IndyCar and they don't have the funding and these tracks aren't, they're not going to switch to Lexan or Plexiglass or some sort of NASA material. They don't need to because guys like you will always get in a car and you're always going to race five, six across with shitty brakes. You just hope that somebody does what they can, like change the rule package, do something to make it safer. I really hope they cover the, the driver's heads. That to me, I mean, I say I'd jump back in the car. I would I would think long and hard about it. My feeling is, I, I mean, yes, I would love to do it. I mean, if I could find a one-off to do the Indy 500, I, you know, I, I don't need to be racing full-time anymore. That's, you know, the big thing as a racing driver is you always wonder what happens next yeah. after the career is over. Uh-huh. And I've been very lucky in many ways that I found a career after it and I would never be willing to let go of that because that is the sensible thing. That is the thing that, you know, 
with a wife and family and all that kind of stuff. That's that's what you need. But if I could jump in for a one-off just to just to do it, just for almost like a hobby, then it, it would take a lot to get me out. But I do hope that perhaps one day if that opportunity comes again, maybe the drivers have some canopies because that is still, still even more than catch fencing, that which perhaps canopies would help with catch fencing. But that is my biggest fear is just drivers with exposed heads. Yeah. We saw a death last year. You know, you just know any oval, it could happen at any single time. Uh, and we saw a death in Formula One. And finally, thanks to the FIA and Formula One, they're developing some form of stuff, a halo system. Okay, it's not mm. quite there, but it's getting there. That will get pushed over to IndyCar at some point. So really, we're looking at Formula One to innovate and then IndyCar just reap the rewards of that. And that's really where we're at right now. Alex Lloyd, thank you very much. Uh, for more, come to thedrive.com. And uh, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me.